Greetings, friends. I am Reverend Vanita Rodman Jenkins, pronouns she, her, hers, and it gives me great pleasure to introduce our next episode. I had the pleasure of interviewing Reverend Will Gaffney, along with Reverend Josh Lee, who is Forefront's community pastor. Reverend Gaffney is a womanist biblical scholar. She is a professor, an Episcopal priest, and an author. And we had such a wonderful conversation with her. So, enjoy. Greetings, friends. This is Reverend Vanita Rodman Jenkins, teaching pastor at Forefront Church, and I am joined by community pastor Reverend Josh Lee. And today we have the honor and privilege of sharing space with world-renowned womanist biblical scholar, Reverend Will Gaffney, who is the Right Reverend Sam B. Hulsey Professor of Hebrew Bible at Bright Divinity School in Fort Worth, Texas. She is also the author of Womanist Midras, a reintroduction to women of the Torah and of the throne, a commentary on Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah in Wisdom series, Daughters of Miriam, Women Prophets in Ancient Israel, and co-editor of the People's Bible and the People's Companion to the Bible. She is the author of a women's lectionary for the whole church and translator of its biblical selections. She is currently writing a second volume of Womanist Midras, super excited about that, focusing on women in the prophets. She is an Episcopal priest, a former army chaplain, and congregational pastor in the AME Zion Church. Dr. Gaffney, it is an absolute joy an honor for us to be able to share space with you today and to have you connect with Forefront Church in this way. Welcome. Thank you, Reverend Vanita, and thank you, Reverend Josh. It's wonderful to be with you all today. Wonderful. So I have the distinct privilege of being introduced to you and your work by my dear friend, Elizabeth Zagata, through a Womanist Midrash book club and an Evolving Faith podcast which highlighted your message, a willingness to be disturbed. I would love to get us started today by asking who or what made you willing to be disturbed? I don't know that we are always willing to be disturbed. My experience is that I have found myself disturbed and decided to do something about it, write through it, preach through it, teach through it. Some of the things that disturbed me were seeing the underrepresentation of women in biblical narratives, seeing them often combined to reproductive texts and then dismissed once they launched a baby into the world, seeing that in those few places where there were meteor texts or interesting characters on the side, they were swept off the page as people focused on male characters further reducing access to women characters, um, seeing uh, people preach and teach constructions uh, that exclude women. So my first book, as you mentioned, was Daughters of Miriam, which looked at women prophets in ancient Israel and the ancient Near East. And I can't tell you how many books on prophets and courses on prophets don't include the women prophets. And so my perspective was, if you don't study all the prophets, you have not studied the prophets. Uh, you've studied male prophets. You may have studied prophets with books named after them in the Bible, 
but you haven't studied prophets if you don't study women prophets. And uh, that was a new idea to some people, which is sort of ridiculous because we don't mm -hmm. do medicine that way. We don't do history that way. Um, although in some other uh, educational pursuits, you might study Renaissance literature and only study male, you know, male authors. So that does happen in other fields, but those are the kind of things that disturb me. Thank you so much. Yeah, that's super helpful. Um, the way that you view and work with scripture is so interesting. And I think that's an important distinction is what is the difference between sort of a, a biblical scholar and a theologian um, by the way you handle in, in your work? With, uh, so would you be willing to speak to, to that difference between what a biblical scholar and a theologian is? The word theologian has layers and resonances to it. When we talk about the way children ask wonderfully profound questions, we might say um, they are already a wonderful theologian. You know, a theologian is a person who thinks about and wrestles with articulating God at some level. But at one particular level, theologians are classically and academically trained, people who've made in-depth study of theology over the course of years. And these are people who are credentialed in the field of theology and will have a number of degrees. And so I differentiate between lay and professional theologians because all of us think about God, name God, wrestle with God, and our work there matters and is significant, but we are lay theologians uh, and not professional theologians. Similarly, a biblical scholar is someone who has trained, studied, and is credentialed in one or more canons of scripture, which always involves learning the languages of the scriptures, as well as some of the earlier languages of primary interpretation. So uh, a biblical scholar is someone who is who is learned in those fields. And we don't generally use the term biblical scholar in the lay sense, uh, although some of our Sunday school teachers and adult form uh, preparers work really hard and use all the resources available to them and are very studious. We tend not to say uh, that they are lay scholars in the way we might say uh, someone is a lay theologian. Thank you, that's a super helpful distinction for our community. Very helpful. So my next question is um, if you can share a little bit about your new book. Um, I'm very excited about it. I have it here sitting next to me, <laughs> a woman's lectionary for the whole church. Um, what can churches expect to experience from this particular book? I'm going to answer it the second part first. Churches can expect to find an entirely new collection of preaching scriptures, new in the sense of how they are arranged and presented for the Sundays of the year. They will find an entirely new set of translations of those scriptures, and they will find uh, technical biblical scholarly commentary on those translations, and they will find preaching commentary uh, on those translations and the combinations. Uh, that can be used for preaching one's way through the year, starting in Advent, which has already begun, uh, preaching one's way through a specific season of the year. Some churches are adopting it for Advent, some for Epiphany, some for the whole year. And individual members of congregations or people who are not affiliated with congregations will find in it a devotional tool because the readings for a particular Sunday can be read over the course of the week 
along with the commentaries as an act of devotion. Now, a little more about what it is. Lectionaries are the way in which the majority of Christians on this planet engage scripture. Over 1 billion Catholics, the Orthodox, the Anglicans, the Episcopalians, the Methodists, the Presbyterians, the Lutherans, some American Baptists, and some independent congregations and non-denominational congregations. And those, the lectionaries that were primarily in use, revised common lectionary for many Protestants, the Episcopal lectionary, the Roman Catholic lectionary, and the Orthodox lectionary are all prepared by men. And they marginalize the presence of women in the texts. This lectionary, centers women in such a way that women are present for most, if not all four of the lessons assigned for each day. And the translations are gender expansive translations, which make the women who are otherwise invisible present. For example, instead of saying, uh, God delivered the Israelites, God delivered the women, children, and men of Israel. So that they're always on the page in the places where there are pearls. That includes places where Joshua slaughtered the women, children, and men of Canaan, right? So uh, it can be affirming and, or it can be alarming. I also use expansive genealogies. So rather than saying the God of Jacob, I might say the God of Rebecca's lineage. So in brief, that's what churches can expect to find. Churches and individuals, because it was written with uh, devotional use in mind, and there are people who have already begun that walk through this new Christian year. Yeah, thanks. Thank you for that. That is, um, it's thought-provoking, and it, it makes me think about your message from the Evolving Faith. That was a few years back, but Evolving Faith recently released some of it also on their uh, podcast. Um, and so that was, there was a message in there where you talked about God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which you just alluded to. And that who is missing when that's referenced. And so the women of that, of those stories, of those men's lives, of, of our faith journey are missing in that um, title for God. And so I'm curious, as you, as you have this book that you're writing that helps highlight the experiences of women, who else do you see us missing in scripture um, that maybe we can be more atoned and aware of, attuned to and aware of? Really everyone on the, on the margins. There are in the Hebrew Bible alone 111 women whose names are preserved. Um, so that's uh, what two years of preaching right there. Um, there are, uh, that doesn't even count the women whose names are not preserved. They're the sister, daughter, wife, mother of someone. Yeah. There are characters who are on the margins because this is not their story, it is an Israelite story. Mm. What happens when we read the story through the Canaanites? Um, uh, should we always identify with the Israelites? So who is missing is everyone who is ignored when the list of heroes is given to us and the list of heroes and preferred candidates and nations are mm. those who have been identified as the center of the story. Because one of the larger questions is not just is God the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The story tells us that clearly. But if we choose to be inclusive and make the broader affirmation that God is the God of Hagar, Sarah, Keturah, and Abraham, uh, Rebecca, and Isaac, 
Rachel, Leah, Bilha, Zilpa, and Jacob, one, do people even know those names to make that affirmation? But two, is that true? Would Bilha and Zilpa, the enslaved women, uh, who were used to breed a quarter of the Israelite uh, mm. sons who would be patriarchs, would they say the God of the enslaver was their God? We know from African-American mm. enslavement that some would, and so Hagar does, but some would not accept that. And so if we make a liturgical proclamation like that, then we have to talk about polygamy and rape and enslavement, mm -hmm. forced surrogacy, forced impregnation. And it means we're telling a very different story than um, God's faithfulness through this three generation of men and their progeny uh, in ages to come. It means we're telling a more complete story, a more troubling story, a more honest story. And then that means we have to ask some questions about God, about the text, about how God is presented. And in Womanist Midrash, and in my teaching, I push my students and my readers to ask if God in the text is God. If the God who says, Abraham, I'm gonna multiply you with people, and some of those people are enslaved people, and some of those people will be offspring that you breed through enslaved people, is that God? Mm. The Southern slaveholders said, absolutely, and we're gonna do the same, mm. right? Um, or is that the God of the text? Is God beyond the text someone else who holds a different view? And how do we negotiate the space between God and the text and God beyond the text? So powerful. <laughs> yeah. Thank That's you right. so mm -hmm. much for that. Um, I just mm -hmm. hear you saying um, a lot. And one of the things I hear you saying is that we do have a responsibility. If we are to if we as forefront, um, as a progressive church, as a church that says um, we are prioritizing um, people who live in the margins and we are focused on LGBTQIA plus inclusion and we are focused on um, working towards anti-racism, then when it comes to the text, we have a responsibility to um, pay attention and to bring to the forefront everyone who's in the margins. Um, and your lectionary, um, I believe, is really going to help us do that um, as we go into our series planning uh, <laughs> next week <laughs> and our sermon planning um, for the new year. Uh, so I thank you for um, your work and what you've done, because I feel like it's definitely going to enlighten and inspire and really help us um, move forward. Um, with our uh, mission to um, just bring to light those who have been rendered invisible. So thank you for that. So with that, my next question is, how can Forefront Church individually and collectively lean more into companion interpretation alongside womanist interpretation? So let's start with talking about who a womanist is. Womanists are Black feminists. And womanism is Black feminism that is richer, thicker, and deeper than white feminism. Alice Walker, uh, whose name comes with uh, some ill repute because of the anti-Semitic uh, remarks that she has made over the course of her career and does not disavow, 
provided a definition of womanism that is continues to be at the heart of womanist thinkers, uh, even as uh, Walker is no longer involved with the term in our constructions. And so we acknowledge that and mark that separation. But in that definition, Walker talked about womanism uh, in comparison with feminism as purple in comparison with lavender. And that's because womanism is deeply intersectional. Womanists always take into account gender and sexuality and race and ethnicity and class at a minimum, also frequently including immigration status, um, so many other markers, ability and disability. So uh, womanism is also perspectival. It is from the perspective and experiences of Black women. So womanists are Black women. And in these days when our understanding of gender is expansive and expanding, uh, I and some others talk about femme Black experience without trying to pin that down narrowly, acknowledging that there are some non-binary folk and uh, there are some femme folk uh, who lean into this uh, because of their experience uh, without regard to their particular uh, physical embodiment. So we are looking at that room. So anyone who is not a Black woman, uh, not a Black femme, uh, not a non-binary Black femme, uh, reads uh, in conversation with, uh, in uh, co-conspiratorial agreement with, um, with womanists. And so one of the questions that readers and hearers can ask is, is there good news in this text for black women? And what is the impact of this text on black women? Who gets affirmed in this text? What is what are the centers of power in this text? There are a, there's a list of interpreting questions in Womanist Midrash uh, that folk who read from any perspective can ask and wrestle with. But if one is going to do a womanist aligned reading, then one needs to be informed by womanists and in conversation with womanists. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm curious, as we get ready to release this podcast around Advent Christmas time, um, and we look at the text uh, of Christmas where Mary is sort of centered in this text and Joseph isn't given any lines, um, it's kind of interesting to think about uh, this text in relation to your lectionary. I haven't read your lectionary yet, so uh, all the way to December to the, you know, Advent Christmas times, I'm curious what would be what would be a womanist interpretation or view or idea of of the Christmas story? What are the things that maybe we miss or we don't always see? Let me back up and talk about uh, Advent because that's where we are right now. Yeah. Uh, for uh, year W, which is a unique year uh, with the women's lectionary, that is a single year, a standalone year that's not part of the traditional ABC Matthew, Mark, Luke. Uh, gospel reading series, this volume, Year W, uh, was crafted with uh, churches that do not use the lectionary, who might want to do a year of preaching through women, 
but didn't want to be one third through a three year project and have not heard from all the gospels. Yes. So I'm going to just talk about Advent in at year W. So I took the theme of Annunciation, which most, if not many or all Christian readers associate with the ever blessed Virgin Mary as we title her in the Episcopal church. And I put on the page for the four weeks of Advent that lead up to Christmas, the first lesson is an Annunciation theme because Mary's Annunciation is not the only Annunciation mm. in the scriptures. So yes. what I do is we use God's Annunciation to Hagar is the first week of mm. Advent. Uh, God's Annunciation to Sarai before she becomes Sarah is the second week of Advent. God's Annunciation to Samson's mother, whose name is not preserved. She's the only woman who has an Annunciation whose name is not preserved, by the way. It's the third week of Advent. And then the fourth week of Advent is God's Annunciation to uh, Hannah. So that on the way to Christmas, uh, congregants and individual readers will have explored this long trajectory of Advent Annunciations and special children, special boy children, and wrestle with um, the fact that uh, infertility is not healed in the modern world in that way, wrestle with women being at the center of these stories uh, because of motherhood, look at ways of reinterpreting uh, those, those motherhoods, um, look at how we are connected to this to these families spiritually, uh, how we are in these lineages without regard to what kind of bodies we have, whether or not our bodies birth or ever will birth. So looking at this as intergenerational connection. So that's how uh, Advent is set up leading us into Christmas. That is rich. I think that we got a little bit of a, a lead on our sermon series for next year at Christmas time. Oh, yes. <laughs> next year will be year A, and there's an entirely different set of sections of lessons. Uh, so next year, uh, so year W and year A, which will go through Matthew's gospel, are out. And next year, the Advent theme is going to be on vulnerability. Uh, mm. So we're looking at uh, Ruth's vulnerability. Uh, we are looking at Susanna's vulnerability. So uh, the lesson is going to come from uh, Susanna in uh, the Deuterocanonical text. So there are going to be um, spaces of, of uh, there, uh, there's going to be the passage in Isaiah about uh, a widowed woman where God uh, speaks to, to Israel as a widowed woman. So we're looking at, at vulnerability and we're holding that over and against the claim of this young woman from Nazareth that she's married, she really hasn't been sexually active. The prospective mm. husband is like, uh, let me talk to the divorce lawyer and get back to you. Um, <laughs> even though there are texts about stoning in the Hebrew Bible, no one appears to really be stoned in the Bible until Jesus breaks up a stoning later. And there's some question as to whether or not that whole thing is a setup. Because mm. look, Every other page in, in the Bible, in any, any testament, has sexual infidelity. So if there were stoning, there would be a lot of stoning. But nobody's ever stoned. 
But in Susanna, for people who do not know that story, and I might have to talk about why I have 80 books in my Bible, as do the majority of Christians on the planet, and some of you are, are down to 66, uh, when she's accused of infidelity, there's a possibility of her being stoned, and so she is put on trial. So I use that as one of these vulnerable readings that the reader might imagine, what if this is what would have happened with the Blessed Virgin? So that's what year A is going to look like in Advent. I love that sanctified imagination of imagining what that looks like, uh, to use your words, uh, yeah. of what that vulnerability would be. <laughs> yeah, and we talked to our church about that and, of course, you know, shared that it's a term that you use and um, a number of churches use. I remember growing up um, in a traditional Black church, and they talked about the sanctified imagination. Um, and, uh, yeah, we, we have introduced you to our congregation so they are familiar with you and your work and um, we want to continue to expose our community to um, this lectionary and um, I guess as a one of our final questions would be you know what are some of the things that you think that we can do to just move forward what's a good place to start hearing all of this might be overwhelming for people as we think about shifting the paradigm um, in terms of how we interpret the text. And, you know, um, I just think uh, maybe just having a first step for individuals um, might be helpful. So uh, read uh, is really, uh, is really the, the, the first line. I think uh, maybe the, the first command that God gave the prophet Muhammad was, uh, if I read, uh, just begin to read. So take, um, take Woman's Midrash in one hand and a Bible with uh, Woman's Midrash, excuse me, the Women's Lectionary in one hand and a Bible with which you're comfortable and familiar in the other hand and start on a Sunday because the, le the week lesson begins on Sunday and maybe read one lesson in the lectionary and in your Bible and then when you have questions about why is it like this, how are these things different, then read the text commentary and see uh, what I'm telling you as a translator about how this translation is made. So one text, one season. Uh, now, Christmas, there's a lot of Christmas in the Episcopal Church. So if somebody tries to start with Christmas, they might be really confused because on Christmas day, we have three sets of Christmas lessons. Uh, we just do. Some people will use one on Christmas Eve, but so on Christmas Day, it's going to be Christmas one, Christmas two, Christmas three, and that's Christmas Day. Uh, that's the feast of the uh, of the incarnation. Then there's the first Sunday after Christmas, which this year is the day after Christmas. So then we get another set of readings, and of course, Christmas is a twelve day season. It's not a day, and so uh, 12 days includes two Sundays. So then there's the second Sunday after Christmas. So there's going to be five sets of Christmas readings. They're going to be broken up by those days. Uh, so pick one. Just pick one and start. Make it a month of Christmas. We won't tell. That is great. Um, and speaking of Christmas, I'm thinking, I heard you say earlier that like lay people, we can just read this. Like this can be used as a devotional material Absolutely. and you're encouraging us to do that now. 
and it's Christmas time and your book is out, we can get this. No, it's Advent. Order. It is Advent. It is not Christmas. It is Advent. Ad yes, Advent. Advent. Christmas is 12 days, as you literally just told us. Yeah, uh, so but this Advent time, <laughs> uh, we are able to order this book so that it arrives by Christmas time and we can give them as gifts. And don't begin reading yeah. Christmas, though. You said we might be confused. Uh, but begin reading at some point after, maybe at the startup after Christmas. So I, I hope our community will consider buying this book for either themselves or someone in their community or maybe a pastor that they know that needs to read this book or maybe integrate it into the life of their church at some point. Maybe it's given to them as an invitation to see scripture in a different way. We have a lot of people who come from a variety of different traditions that are in our congregation and settings. Yes. And uh, people who are reading and uh, preparing uh, lessons uh, and sermons and liturgy and people who are reading devotionally are in conversation on my website, willgaffney.com and uh, people are sharing their questions and observations. Uh, people are sharing uh, liturgies, uh, Advent wreath lighting uh, rituals, uh, uh, prayers for the beginning of the service, um, just all kinds of uh, conversation and interaction is happening there. And so you're all welcome to peruse that and participate in those conversations. Thank you so much for that. I am just so grateful for um, this conversation and for the time that you have taken to share with us. Um, it was such a joy just sitting at your feet <laughs> via the Zoom space. And honestly, as a Black woman, Reverend Gaffney, I have been um, tremendously inspired by your work. And I look forward to learning more and deepening my faith through this next book and then introducing what I have learned um, as teaching pastor to our congregation. So thank you so much um, for your time, uh, Reverend Josh. Yes, thank you for your wisdom and your insights. And uh, we look forward to what else you write and the continual layers of insights that you reveal to us that sometimes we miss when we read scripture. Thank you so much.